Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. If you were here last week, you would know that we covered this passage, but in just a few sentences. It is uh, a short passage, and I have in the back a very long outline for a short passage. Uh, do yourself a favor and ignore that outline. Um, I'm, I'm still working on outlines, and I'm not really good at it, but think of it more as a reference. But this, this morning, we will be looking at the call of Elisha as an example of God's call to all Christians, and as God's call to officers as well. We have many men right now who are considering whether or not they will serve as elder or deacon. Um, and so I'm speaking to you, specifically men, but also to everyone. God has a call that he has given ministers to, to share with everyone, the gospel. And that call is for you. So this morning, as we look at this passage, um, although there's, there's a lot in, involved in God's call, uh, you'll see I'm going to narrow it down to three things, really. Consider the one who is calling. Consider, secondly, the effect of the call, the power of the call. And finally, the purpose of the call, what God has called us to. So if you like alliteration, the purpose, the person calling, the power of the call, and the purpose of the call. Um, and the reason this, there's so much to say about such a, a little passage is because there is really a lot involved in God's calling us. When God calls us, he calls you into a relationship. It is a change of your status. It gives you a role. It places you under obligation. God's call tells you who you are to be, what you are to do, and a lot of what you can expect. So let us all uh, consider this as we read uh, this passage, 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 19. This call is for all who are far, all who are near, as many as the Lord calls to himself. This is God's word. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law. We pray that you would help us to have ears to hear what you say to the church, ears to hear your, your call. I pray that your sheep would hear your voice, calling them by name, and they would come and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
This is a short passage, but a turning point, obviously, for Elisha. Many prophets are called in the Old Testament. Not many are given many details about the, their call, how they, how they became a prophet. This passage is different. It shows us a little bit of Elisha's background, just a glimpse, and the transforming effect of the call. There's a few things about it that I don't understand. I don't know exactly what the significance is of him throwing his mantle, his cloak, over him. Commentators are not sure about this. Also, I'm not totally sure what he means when he says, go back again, what have I done to you? If he's saying, remember what I've done to you, or it's of your free will. I'm not sure, so if you have those questions, I'd be happy to tell you about what I think afterwards, but I'm not here to speculate this morning. I want to tell you about what we do see here about the call. God is the one who has called Elisha. And this is the first point. The call of God is sovereignly initiated. When you, you hear your phone ring, you don't wonder, who am I calling? You're wondering, who's calling me? God's call is from him. He is the one who initiates it. It's from God. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called. Now, if you read back a few verses earlier, you might remember God had told Elijah when he was back at Mount Horeb that Elisha would replace him back in verse 16. Elisha, meanwhile, had no idea, blissfully ignorant, that God had chosen him to be not just a prophet, but Elijah's replacement. It's a pretty hefty role. Elijah, Elisha didn't send in an application he wasn't, sent, he wasn't found in a school of prophets or in a cave being fed by Obadiah. He was not studying in a synagogue somewhere. He was farming until the very moment that Elijah threw his cloak over him. So it was with Jesus' disciples when he called them from their roles. They were fishing. Matthew was a tax collector. And Jesus said, come, follow me. In fact, Jesus would even say later on to the, his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose an, uh, you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Hebrews also tells us about the priesthood. It says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So this is the first point. God is the one who in our worship at the Lord's table, in salvation, and in, the, in regards to the ministry, God is the one who initiates the call. We are the responders. God invites us to himself. He invites us to worship. He invites us to Christ. We can't take any glory in that, that we chose, that we somehow beat out the other applicants. God calls you by name. If you're a Christian, it's because God chose you, not for anything in yourself, but because he looked down in love and in pity and called you by name to be his child. It's a wonderful thing. You were lost. You did not find him. He found you. He came down from heaven. You were hopeless. 
helpless. Without God, without Christ in this world, you were fighting against him, and he rescued you. He chose you also, not just a few days before you were saved, but before the foundation of the world. So all the glory goes to God alone. Now, I want to connect to this point that God's call is therefore undeserving and gracious. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So God looked down through the ages and chose you, not for any merit that he saw in you. Not because, as Rich was saying in Sunday school, God saw that you were going to be good. You're still not that good. You know, so you can't, you can't claim that God chose you because you're somehow better than others. If you ask yourself, well, then why me? Why did he choose me? You won't find the answer by looking at yourself. The answer is not to be found in you at all. It is found in God. Moses said in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it is because the Lord loves you. In other words, if I can shrink that down a little bit, paraphrase it more, the Lord set his love on you because the Lord loves you. That's as far back as you can go. He loves you because he loves you. That's why. And, and so all we can do is, is respond in praise and in worship and to give him all the glory. Now, secondly, I want you to see that this gracious call that God initiated is not just a request. It is a divine summons. When God calls, it's not, if you feel like it, I'm having a party on Friday. If your schedule's open, you're welcome to join. If not, just do whatever you want. When God calls, it comes with divine authority, all authority, not a mere invitation, a divine summons that must be obeyed. This is true whether you are a Christian or not. God calls you to repent. It's not an invitation. It is a command. And this command he gives to each of you, all of you in this room, everyone in the world is called to repent because God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world through the man, a man he has appointed, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. God's call is a call to himself, a call to salvation, a call away from our rebellion. Now, it's true, in this call, God does not force us against our wills. Rather, he works by his Holy Spirit, changes our hearts so that we freely come, but the Holy Spirit leads us by the hand, as it were, in the call, back to himself. It is nevertheless a command, a command that must be obeyed. And if God says, repent, and you don't repent, it's even more sin. Another disobedience. So if God says, follow me and repent, it is not a suggestion. 
I want you to notice also, though, that although it's a divine summons, God generally calls through men. He could have called Elisha personally. He could have sent down an angel. Instead, he uses Elijah to go and to call him to himself. This is the way God is generally pleased to work. It's the way he prefers to share his gospel through weak people like me and like you. It is the same with the Ethiopian eunuch. God sent uh, Philip over there to, to share the gospel with him, to explain what he was reading when he already had a copy of the scroll of Isaiah with him. God is pleased to use weak people like us in this great work of the salvation of the world. For you officers and men considering office, it is, this call is an internal one and an external one. There is this desire that God has placed in you to serve him in this way. There's also the church recognizing that God has gifted you and calling you to serve in this way. So there's an internal and an external call. This is the way that the Holy Spirit generally loves to work in our salvation, to call us out by sharing the gospel with us through weak people. Now, there's another thing about the call that I want you to notice. It is a defining, all-encompassing call. God's call is not, again, not like any other invitation that you'll ever hear, not just because of the one who's calling, but because of the power of the call, the effect of the call. God's voice created the world. Our voices can't do that. We can't create things by speaking. But God calls into being that which was not. His call transformed the apostle Paul. Paul was on the way, you remember, to persecute the believers. And Jesus appeared and called, he called Saul not just to stop, but he called him to go into his service to go from being the chief persecutor of the church to being an apostle. Not because Paul was a good guy. Not because he was educated well. He chose a weak person, uh, a persecutor, to show his perfect patience, to show that there is no one so far gone in sin that God cannot save him and make him, make him great in his kingdom. God's call is a transforming call. I remember reading the story of George Whitfield, how he would preach. He could preach, he could be heard like a mile away. I remember Benjamin Franklin trying to do experiments to figure out how far away he could hear this guy preaching. Just God blessed him with this incredible voice. And it's probably good, too, because there were lots of guys who would pick up rocks and try to throw them at Whitfield. But by the time they got there, they had heard so much of the message that they became Christians before they got within throwing range. And then they became pastors and missionaries. That's the power of God's call. It is a transforming power. I think if you come tonight and hear Alexander Tutsarov, you'll hear another example of someone who was fighting against God and heard God's call, and it transformed him. Now, God decided in our call 
He decided who we are before the foundation of the world. He calls us into that. He creates us. He changes us. He changes our names. He transforms us by his call. So when God calls us effectually, you are changed. Something has happened to you. It's not just external. Something changes within you. His call determines who you are. It is this way. It is not this way with anyone else's call. For God calls from a position of absolute lordship and ownership. If Jesus came into this room right now and looked at me and said, follow me, Steve, I might be tempted to say, "Um, my name's Daniel. And he might say, not anymore. And he could do that because he owns me. I belong to him. That's part of what is going on when he renames people in the Bible. He says, your name's not Abram anymore. Your name's Abraham. Your name's not Jacob anymore. Your name's Israel. This was all also, by the way, an improvement on their name. But he, he can name them, one, because he knows who they really are. He changes what they are. Even before Abraham is father of a multitude, he calls him father of a multitude because he knows what Abraham will be. He knows better than anybody else who Abraham is and what will happen. But also because he owns us. He owns us completely. In fact, in Revelation, it talks about how we will be given a new name, a better name than the one you have, an improvement. He won't be upset when he gives it to you. Um, it is a blessed name. And he can do this because of who he is. One day earlier, Elisha was just a farmer. Now Elisha is a servant. Soon, Elisha will be a prophet. So too with us, when God calls us from from sin to conformity with Christ, it is a transforming call. He calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God creates the universe by speaking. He makes new creation. He makes us a new creation by speaking as well. God's call then is a transforming one. It has a power of its own. It was God's power working through the call. And because he changes us by this call, it is also permanent. There can be no going back. That is perhaps the thing that sticks out the most about this particular passage. Elisha is changed and it is permanent and there is no going back. So too with you. You have been changed, brothers and sisters, you are called, remember Lot's wife. There is no turning back. You are not to live as other people lived. You are not to live as you used to live. God has changed you. He has called you to something higher, something different. He has called you to himself. He has called you to salvation. He has called you to light. We are then to no longer walk in sin, no longer walk in darkness. God's call is an all-encompassing call for you. It is not to become a Christian on the side. It is who you are. Kent Hughes 
tells a story about a 17-year-old boy, Norwegian boy, named Peter. He was so stirred by the call to missionary giving that when the plate came by, he took out his wallet and he dumped out everything he had into the offering plate. And then almost as an afterthought, he wrote down on a piece of paper three words and placed it in the offering plate as well. Aug meet life and my life. He was giving his entire life to God. And we say, well, that's wonderful that Peter did that. But it's not just Peter who is called to give all that he has. All of us. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? It is that you are not your own, but that you belong, body and soul, life and death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a fact. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, you are not to seek your own will in life. You are not to seek out your purposes, your direction, your purpose, your identification comes from who God has called you to be. Calvin said, unless you give up all thought of self, and so to speak, get out of yourself, you will accomplish nothing here. For how can we do the works of love without renouncing ourselves and giving us wholly to others? Love does not seek its own. We belong to God. Let us therefore live and die for him. Let his wisdom rule all, all our actions. Now this call is all-encompassing, and it is a permanent one, transformative change. Elisha, when he hears this call, he goes and says, asks if he can tell his parents goodbye first. You might know there's a similar passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, no one can, can turn back to the plow after being called. It sounds like it's a reference to this, and I think it is, but I think in the case with Jesus, when um, he called a man who said, let me first go bury my father, I'm guessing he was delaying. That Who knows how long it could be. In Elisha's case, he's going back in order to follow. He's going back just to tell them goodbye as a dutiful son, and he will be a dutiful son to Elijah as well, and speak of Elijah as his father later on. But it's so drastic and permanent, the change that occurs here. He, he tells his parents goodbye, and then he takes the very bulls he was using to plow the ground, and he burns them from the wood of the plow that he was using. His entire, his, he burns his tools, he burns his animals. And I'm guessing, I'm speculating here just a little bit, that there was, this was not the only wood in Israel this plow. He took this plow and burned it, not because it was the only thing around, but as an expression that he has changed and there is no going back. He burns these animals, not as a sacrifice, it seems. He goes and shares it. Matthew, the tax collector, also threw a party afterwards when God called him. Elisha, Elisha is celebrating, but he's also making a, a permanent break 
you might have heard the story about in 1519 how Cortez came and, and burned the ships, so to speak. I think that's actually not true. He scuttled them, but he, he destroyed the ships that they were using so that they would never sail back to the old life, that they were there to stay. So it is with, with us, brothers and sisters. A permanent change has taken place. It is a commitment to be the Lord's and to not go back. You are a new creation. God has, has changed you when he saved you. Romans 11.29 says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It is permanent. Now, we've considered who it is who's calling. We've considered a little bit of the effects of the call. But what about the purpose of the call? And we'll see that also here in this, in this story. First thing I want to point out about this is that you, brothers and sisters, are called to fellowship. In God's wisdom and mercy, when Elijah called Elisha, it was not to replace him immediately. Elijah might have preferred that, but he calls him to be with him for, it seems like, years. Uh, and so for a long time, these two men would serve the Lord together. Elijah had felt very much alone. He thought he was the only one left, and God, in his mercy, gave Elijah a companion. At the same time, he gave Elisha a mentor. So this is another point we see. When God calls to us, it's not a call to a mere job, but into a relationship. He calls us into fellowship with himself and with his people. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You are not called just to do Christian things. You are called to know God. You are called to be with God. And you are not called simply to be saved individuals scattered across the countryside. You are called to be God's church, a body. God has brought us together in fellowship in the call. The call has made you part of his family. It is adopting call. So God binds us together by the Holy Spirit as the body of Christ, and not just a mass of individuals. Now, Jesus expressed this in a pretty amazing way in Mark. He said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this life houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children and lands along with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. How is this true? A hundred times as many family members in this life. It must be because God has bringing us into the church. We have so many more brothers and sisters. We have the biggest family in the world now, an eternal family. And so God brings, brings all this to pass in this life along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. He calls us to fellowship with his people. We are called to him and by, to one another. This, you see, is also a call to discipleship. 
It's a call to service. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, Elijah, Elisha would replace Elijah, but he first becomes his assistant. That's what it says. That's how our passage ends. Then he arose and went after Elijah and not replaced him. It says, and assisted him. Elisha has been called to be a servant. Later on in 2 Kings 3, Elisha, Elisha would be introduced as the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. This is part of the Christian life. The Christian life, the Christian calling is a call to service. It is so even for the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. He was called to be the greatest servant of all, and he was, or should I say, and he is. And he calls us into conformity with himself, and that means a life of service. And so this might sound like a step down for Elisha from one perspective. From a worldly perspective, Elisha was pretty secure. The text emphasizes the number of oxen. Twelve oxen. And you might say, oh, does that have something to do with the twelve tribes of Israel? I don't know. Probably not. But it means that he had a lot of oxen. He had a lot of oxen, which probably meant a lot of land. He's at, it emphasizes his position at the back of him. So he's probably... Commentators say, I'm not a farmer, I don't know, but he is probably the owner or the heir. He is not just a farmer, he is the heir to a country estate. He is doing well for himself, he has security, he has familiarity, he has a future, a well, uh, he has everything that he needs right here, and now it's finally raining again, and things are looking good. And now, instead of being the heir to a country st- estate, Elisha becomes the servant of basically a homeless guy. And so this seems like a step down. It was the same thing for the disciples. The Lord Jesus had no place to lay his head. They were called out from their families, called out from their jobs, from their own experience, from their communities, to follow Jesus wherever he went. Jesus, who had no place to lay his head, And in some ways, this seems like a demotion. Like, he has gone down. His his career has gone... He's had several decades of career retrogression in a moment. Goes down to being a servant. You know, I remember Sinclair Ferguson telling a story about how he was at a gathering, I think it was a party or something, one time, and there was a man in the room who people spoke about in almost hushed tones and whispers. They're like, that man over there is the man who holds the footstool for the Queen of England when she steps out of her carriage. She, you know, in one perspective, that man is a servant. It's a lowly position. But they were almost in awe of this guy because who he was a servant to. And this way, it was a great promotion Brothers and sisters, if the, if the world understood who it is who called you and what is your relationship to him, they would speak in whispers around you. 
This is a person that knows the king of kings, that is a child of the king. That is honorable. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If, if God calls you from being president of the United States to serving this church, it is a step up. We are called to something great, even though it is a, a position of service. God's call is always a promotion, whether he calls you to salvation, whether he calls you to serve the church in office, or whether he calls you home to himself when you die. It is a promotion. It is the upward call of, of God in Christ Jesus. That is the direction that we are called. Along with this, though, brothers and sisters, it is a call to service and it is a call to suffering. Elisha is not merely becoming a servant. He is becoming a servant to the enemy of the state number one as far as Ahab and Jezebel are concerned. Elijah is a hunted man. This is an age when prophets are hunted down and slain. And there's nothing about this call that tells Elisha he will be safe, that he will somehow be immune from persecution. He goes willingly. He is going to go follow around Elijah wherever he goes and be chased probably by the king and the queen. It is a call to suffering as well as a call to service. Elisha must know that. And brothers and sisters, we must know that too. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think it should be impossible for anyone to suffer afterwards as a Christian and say, well, I didn't expect this. I thought it was all going to be red carpet all the way to heaven. No, God has called us to follow Jesus. The road to heaven cannot bypass the cross. It goes right through it. That is the way of suffering. That is the way that God has called us. We deny ourselves. And we take up our crosses to follow him. It is a call to suffering. And Peter knew this from personal experience. He wrote, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you follow in his steps. God has called you for the purpose of suffering, but it is also for the purpose of glory. It is the story of the whole Bible, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That is the way. Your path in this world is a path of service and suffering. It is a glorious path of service and suffering. Yet it is still true all day long we are considered as sheep destined for slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And brothers and sisters, it's not just a call to suffering, and to self-denial, and to service, lest you be too depressed by all this, it is also a call to something great. It is a call to holiness. It is a call to God-likeness, godliness. This point is often emphasized in Scripture, if you were to search through Scripture and to see what it says about calling. 
it will say things like this, walk in the manner, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Ephesians 4.1. Or in Thessalonians, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Or, as I read earlier, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are called to holiness, which is at the same time a call to glory. God is holy. He is beautiful. He, there is no impurity in him. There is nothing imperfect about him. God is, is calling us to reflect that as creatures can. Sin, on the, on the other hand, is ugly. It is shameful. It is harmful. And brothers and sisters, that is not what you are called to do. That is not what you are called to be. Your destiny is higher than that. Let us gladly throw off whatever hinders us that we might follow God consistently. Let us pursue it gladly and with all our hearts. In addition to this holiness, we are called to glory. All that suffering, all that service, Suffering that I mentioned before, it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits. It far outweighs whatever is lost. Again, from 1 Peter chapter 5, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is good news, brothers and sisters. That is an incredible, wonderful promise. It's your future. It's what God has called each of us to. After you have suffered for a little while, God, the God who has called you to himself will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So brothers and sisters, let us gladly take up this call. Answer it. Let us leave the ways of the world and come running whenever and wherever God calls us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace to obey you. Call us wherever you will. Call us whenever you will. Call us to give up whatever you will. Only give us grace to obey you gladly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we have the gospel presented to us in the Lord's Supper. You'll find that the things that we spoke about in the sermon are also pictured here. Consider the one who called you. It is God. He has taken the initiative. He has paid the cost. He has brought the feast and he calls you to himself. It is a call to fellowship. As we partake, we fellowship with one another. We fellowship with Jesus Christ. It is also a reminder that you are not your own, that you have been bought with the blood of Christ. The blood that forgives you is also the blood that purchases you for himself. We are his body, and we are brought into communion and fellowship with him. He gives us life. He gives us grace, and he calls us to live as his body. All these things 
about the call are pictured here in the Lord's Supper. I want, if you, if you belong to the Lord Jesus, this meal is for you. If you are a member of a Bible-believing church, this is not the table of East Bridge Presbyterian. This is for you. If you struggle with sin, it's certainly for you. I remember a story, uh, a Scottish minister who was a great Hebrew scholar, he was, they called him Rabbi Duncan. And it happened in the age when people would come up to the table and actually sit around the table. And as the cup was passed around from person to person, there was a woman there who took the cup and passed it on without partaking. And she just sat there in tears. And Rabbi Duncan came down from the pulpit and grabbed the cup and he pressed it into her hand. And he said, take it, woman. It's for sinners. Brothers and sisters, this cup is for you. Jesus Christ doesn't call the worthy. He calls us so that he might give us grace, that he might give us himself. Brothers and sisters, this is for you. Come gladly. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would feed us now, that you would focus us on Christ, your Son, that we would fellowship with you and with him and fellowship with one another. Thank you, Lord, for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light, calling us to feast at your table. In Jesus' name, amen.